What's up, guys? Very brief intro to this episode. This is part four of my ongoing series with Eric Kaysen. If you're not familiar with Eric, he's a phenomenal writer and thinker in the Bitcoin space. You can check out his writing at cryptosovereignty.org. He's also a very close friend of mine, and we decided just to get together every so often, rip a conversation and see what comes of it. I've been using them, at least from my side, to explore certain themes or topics that I'm trying to get more uh, clarity around or re refine my thinking around. And they've been hugely uh, helpful in that, which I then carry over to a piece of writing that I've been working on. So you don't need to go back and listen to the, the first three if you uh, haven't already. It, it, it's not a continuous dialogue. And we try not to um, repeat the topics that we cover. So they, they should all be fairly fresh and evergreen. That said, this one was recorded, I think, six to eight weeks ago, something like that. So I'm not sure. I can't remember if we cover anything particularly topical. But if it seems like it's behind or if things have evolved since, that would be why. Before we get going, I'd like to say thank you to the people and companies that support this show. The first is Bull Bitcoin. If you're buying Bitcoin in Canada, you should be doing it at Bull Bitcoin. It's a non-custodial exchange with a focus on privacy. When you make the order, you input your own self-custody receive address, which means as soon as the order is completed, it goes right to you. You don't assume any of the exchange risk. The guys at Bull Bitcoin are also behind BitcoinSupport.com. This is for those of you who need some help getting your self-custody arrangement set up properly in a manner that's both secure, but also easy to manage and engage with. They have a number of different packages available based on your needs. So check them out at BitcoinSupport.com and find the one that's right for you. Also, CoinKite, the makers of the famous cold card hardware wallet, the latest edition, the MK4, recently dropped. It has a USB-C connector, NFC tap functionality, dual secure elements, and lots of other great features that many of us have come to expect and love from ColdCard and CoinKite that help you to optimize your Bitcoin security setup. Visit coldcard.com to learn more about the MK4 and visit coinkite.com to learn more about all their other awesome products for helping you to secure and have fun with your Bitcoin. And lastly, I've been slacking a little bit on the value for value podcasting 2.0 stuff. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with what that is, there are certain podcasting apps that are available now as a result of uh, the functionality brought to Bitcoin by the Lightning Network that allows you to either stream sats as you listen to podcasts or tip or what's called boost. Um, you know, when you when you hear something that you really like, you can send a, a tip of 100 sats or 1,000 sats or whatever you want, really, to uh, the creator. And it goes directly to the podcast content creator. And I can certainly appreciate that uh, people may not want to let go of their sats uh, unless they absolutely have to. And of course, when they're receiving free content, they don't have to. But it has been very interesting to me to see that, you know, a non insignificant number of people are actually willing to send and tip sats uh, for this content. One, obviously, because, you know, I think they value it. But two, I think many of us realize that this could very well represent a better model for supporting content creators in the future. As we, you know, we exist in an era and potentially heading into uh, an era of even greater censorship that removing all potential sensors from the creator and the audience will be vitally important and podcasting 2.0 is a means of doing that or at least getting the ball rolling and experimenting and see what might evolve from doing so 
So if you'd like to try that out, a really great easy to use wallet can be downloaded at fountain.fm. And to sweeten the deal a little bit and to get people playing around with this uh, new method of, of consuming content, Fountain has agreed to give 50,000 Satoshis on four different occasions to a listener who sends a boostergram to a given show. So basically, I'll be able to see all the boosts that come through, and I'll pick one that I think is interesting or otherwise deserving of 50,000 sats, and we'll send them to their uh, Fountain user account. Also for now, that's gonna be the primary domain where I interact with users. So if you have a suggestion for the show, or if you have a question that you would like me to explore or a topic you'd like me to explore on the show, send that message as a boost. And uh, you never know, it could make its way into the show. So check it out, any questions, comments, suggestions, uh, let me know, I'd love to hear them. And that's it, enjoy the show. We can break into uh, the formal discussion here now, I guess. Now, I don't know where I'll, I'll start it. Maybe, maybe even here, because we talked about a few personal things before. But uh, a rundown of current events is probably warranted. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is quite the advertisement so far this year. And it's, I, I always feel that it's so crazy that Bitcoin's price is as low as it is. You know, I've like there's been no time in, in my history of thinking about it where I haven't felt that way, right? So it's not really that rare that I feel that way today. But I maybe it's even more absurd that you know this thing is only priced at what at what it's priced, given this the, how obvious its value proposition is on a global on the global stage today, you know. But but you're right. I mean, it's 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 almost like we like the world or, or the people that are uh, susceptible to the, the mainstream and the, the political narratives, they only have the capacity to attend to, to, ha to have their attention directed at one thing in a at a time, right? It's like, you know, it's COVID 24 seven, be terrified, do what you're told, don't care about anything that you're giving up, just, just shut the fuck up and do it because otherwise you're gonna die. And it's like, okay, and then, you know, as soon as something else emerges, and I'm not diminishing the severity of what's happening in Russia, Ukraine at all. I don't fucking know what's happening there. I suspect that the geopolitical dynamic that, uh, you know, fostered the current circumstance is way more complex than most people that have chosen a side already um, assume and that the mainstream narrative is is putting forward like that's almost always a truism that's almost always the case but i don't know what's going on there um but it seems like you know now that's the only thing that's worthy of mainstream attention and it, i mean this kind of speaks to why the one of the dangers of that because it like tyranny could almost be described as a singular attention, right? The removal of nuance, right? Only, only attending to and only acting and, and imposing solutions on one particular aspect of reality or concern at a time. And the reason why that feels tyrannical is because you exclude everything else. And now that exclusion may be one of omission, or maybe one of not being concerned about the repercussions of those things you're excluding by taking action on the thing that you're attending to. Right. And this is this is the case with COVID, right? Like, we're, we're so focused on the fear. 
we don't care about the removal of liberties and the, the violation of rights and all the things that happen as a result of our actions and responses to COVID. And this is why, you know, a large and growing cohort of people believe that what's happened has been authoritarian, has been tyrannical for that very reason. And, and like, even though I agree that, you know, we've said this probably ad infinitum at this point that yes, there's powerful factions and them playing to their incentives can be counter to our incentives and it feels like a conspiracy is there and there very well may be. But also I just think it's like this uh, propensity for people to fall into the trap of a singular focus or attention. And that kind of generates the deleterious or negative consequences upon all those things that attention is not being placed where where you know, like where people are not attending to the concerns of. And here we are again, right? So we're it, it we're feels now a we're lot all like uh, it feels like paranoid schizophrenia in a lot of ways to me. Like that that you you get so hyper focused on this pinpoint of fear, and that you make that all encompassing. And like in that same vein, though, that you completely forget about everything else. Um, and the the other one that I feel uh, like spiritually in my soul is that. Uh, like it, it's so dark and callous. Like it, it's such like a pussy chicken shit way to fucking live. To ju what just is? be like, oh God, we're we're afraid. We're afraid of COVID. We're afraid of war. We're afraid. Oh God, it's uh, the sky is falling. And it's just like such a shitty and horrible way to live. Mm -hmm. And like I'm so desperate. Um, like DeSantis recently, there's a great clip of him like walking in and all the kids have masks on he's like what the fuck are you doing like this is all theater we knock this shit off like stop it stop it and he like tells the kids to take their masks off unless they don't want I to saw and, it. it was great and like it's so relieving because like i just i just want that logical response to go look like there this thing's going on but we can't meet it in this callous and fearful way because not only does that callous fearfulness have us so misfocused that we forget about all of the other concerns and things that are going on. But it it really has an affect that we don't remember that like we are these courageous individuals who have made the world and that can help ourselves and save one another. But it, I really think it's just about this pedantic fear-based thing. And I mean, I'm, you're probably aware of the studies that they did in the Soviet Union in the 1960s where they discovered that like, if, if you just blare at people for two months straight fear propaganda, that like, they'll just believe whatever you have to say at this point in time. Hmm. And it's really interesting too, because like now the facts are coming out that like, we have several smoking guns that are pointing the fact that like, COVID was leaked from a lab. It was specifically based on bioweapons that were being developed that got out. Uh, I'm like, nobody's it's just like, yeah, but there's like a war in Ukraine though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? And the other funny thing about the war in Ukraine is, uh, so one of my degrees is in international relations. And like, I'm, I'm like pretty well informed about what's going on. And even with that, you know, like I can say, I, like, I, I don't know what's going on. The fog of war here is just too clear. Uh, and this like serves the agenda of the powerful a little too well. And not to mention that, like, we have this global orchestration that happens immediately. And then the last one that's scary enough is, and, you know, we've been acutely aware of this for a long time, but essentially global powers have said, look, like it, if you're one of the people we don't like, you're cut off. You know, mm -hmm. so like the Russian oligarchs, the, the, the bad guys, like we're just straight up stealing their shit now.
And yeah. even like when they're like, okay, like we're going to go to the Cayman Islands where there's some legal protection. Nope, fucking we're still going to seize your shit. And to me, like this is the most alarming part because like this is the, uh, like this is crypto communism, like rearing its ugly head. Like it turns out that Western global powers are actually a communist pact that believes they're entitled to the ownership of everything, irregardless of any legal decrees. Uh, you know, and, and at this point in time, my only hope is in the United States, like we have pretty powerful state governments that seem to be pretty well equipped to resist. But in the grand scheme of things, it, it you know, I, I, I don't think that makes a difference. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's scary at how well this fear based mentality allows for contortions and control to happen in such a deep and powerful way that uh, like it. You know, it's removed from logic at any point in time, and it just becomes a tool to manipulate people into whatever you want them to do. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think I saw on Twitter this morning that, you know, whichever Russian billionaire had his yacht that was in Germany confiscated. And I'm like, how the fuck does that make any sense? Like, is he a is he a part of the government? Is he Putin? Is he like... You know, as you say, like it's such a slippery slope and the same thing happened in Canada, right? You know, like the, the bank accounts being seized of people that were involved in a peaceful protest. Nobody caribou having the cops show up and seemingly confiscate, you know, Bitcoin that was donated by uh, people to that cause. You know, like, as you say, there's no due process whatsoever. It's like the narrative says that you are either the bad guy or you're associated with the bad guy, bad guy. Or you're just doing something that we kind of don't really think is great or want to happen. And therefore, we have the power to take your shit. So we're going to take your shit. And you can't, like you said, like nobody really bats an eyelash at that. Like, oh, well, Putin's evil. And, you know, Russians are evil by association. You have, you know, people on the pundits, the talking heads on mainstream media, kind of like characterizing all Russians as evil. It's like, are you out of your fucking minds? You know, if, if, if any well, entity like, was going to be point out, like, I just want to say like the, the absolute hatefulness and racism that's being displayed by the mainstream media, it, it fucking outrages me. Like in, in the exact same vein that they're celebrating and patting themselves on the back for taking Ukrainian refugees, they're, they're literally disparaging and throwing racist comments at all the brown and black people that are trying to escape the same thing. You know, people are congratulating themselves for taking in Ukrainian refugees, but any of those Ethiopians that happen to get on the shore from their fucking, you know, the tiny dinghies that they're all drowning in, like, fuck them and send them back. And it's yeah. just, it, it's heartbreaking and terrifying to see the way that not only the hypocrisy of this dialogue, but the way that, like, I've even had people show up in my thread saying stupid shit about, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with who Alexander Dugan is, but in a lot of ways, Alexander Dugan, he's a Russian theorist, he's a Russian political theorist that completed a lot of Heidegger's works uh, that essentially kind of arrives at, at some latent fascism that uh, believes in ethno-nationalism, which I don't believe in, but I think understanding Dugan in the grand political landscape and understanding what Russia is doing is very important. But when I pointed this out, I had stupid fucks show up in my thread that were like, what are you like pro-Russian nationalism? And it's like, like, how fucking dare you that just because I read something and trying to understand what's going on, that you start throwing out this disparaging bullshit. And it's just, it's so upsetting to see how easily people are manipulated into this hateful rhetoric. And I just yeah. want to emphasize more than anything, like, 
fuck all war unconditionally, unilaterally. Anyone who says that they have a right to kill people because of something that they're doing, fuck them. Like they're the enemies. And I just want to be very clear about that, that like all war is bullshit. All war is imperialism and all war victimizes people at the benefit of those in positions of power. And I really wish people would understand that greater with what's going on in Ukraine, that there is no good side here. This is all part of the big bullshit plan of how these motherfuckers get to make a bunch of money off of the suffering of other people. Yeah, no, I agree. And the, the, the only point I was going to make was that, you know, who's been the primary aggressor of the last century on the geopolitical landscape? It's obviously been the States, right? You, know, you go into any country and yeah. fuck shit up and by all means, criticize, you know, whatever forces led to that happening. Cause I agree with what you just said, but for, for like people and then you like the victims of that, like, let's say, you know, if you're Afghani, if you're Iraqi, like you would be right to criticize those people that are coming in and killing your family and destroying your country, for example. But you would be wrong to say that every American is, is condemnable because of that, because, you know, I, they're obviously, they're powerless to stop that. They're powerless to step in. And the same is true for, for you know, Russians right now. Like, to, to this is my this, this is the point I was making. Like, it's so pathetic in mainstream media that, like, Russians generally are being, and, and you know, like, maybe, all, quote, unquote, oligarchs are closer to the power spigot. Maybe that's why they're being treated this way. But it's still not doesn't seem justified to me it doesn't seem just that you can like guilty by association and therefore we're going to take all your shit i mean again like we're, we're breaking the 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 we're breaking the the very like fundamental things that hold society together and i'm we're both big critics of the way society works today right but we have to appreciate that there are certain elements of it that are probably pretty good that are at least pretty good to allowed for a more peaceful prosperous society in me than many cases in the past and we're just so willy-nilly doing away with those like fundamental pillars and not appreciating that well what ha what happens when you take pillars away well you take enough away and the roof collapses right and it just there's, there's no discussion or appreciation for that today yeah, I mean, in all honesty, like, I actually think that this is the first signs of the collapse of the Westphalian order that's, you know, governed the globe for the last 450 years. And it's really alarming, because essentially, we're saying not only are we not going to respect your territorial boundaries and the integrity of your sovereignty, but like, we're going to have an all out war on every front that we can. And the first one that we're going to hit is the economic bounds. And we're going to make the people of your country suffer the most just because that's going to be the easiest and the quickest thing. And to me, it's like, look, even if you do want to do all of this bullshit and you want to use a, a, a legal process, great. Like you're using the law still, but like we're not doing that at all. And to me, like this is what's the most alarming is like, look, if, if, if the Russians are actually guilty, great. Like let, let's put them on trial. Let's have all of this operate through the actual legal procedures that we have. But it seems that we've just thrown jurisprudence at the window and said, you know what? We're going to go with legalized lawlessness, where whatever the sovereign declares or decides, that's what happens. And like, I, I got to tell you, it, it's fucked up and funny at how much all this stuff aligns so immediately with the work that I did over the last four years in, in sovereignty theory. 
you know, and like um, I have a piece, the the sovereign, the subject, and crypto power that is explicitly about this thing: how the state of emergency can be used to label anyone as an enemy, and they use that to strip rights. And like to be very clear, like this is the beginning of a procedure where eventually it decides that people get labeled as terrorists, they get thrown in concentration camps, and then probably killed in really horrific and heinous ways. And we're so selfish in, in that we're like, oh, well, this is the West. We have rule by law. Like that shit can't happen here. And like, have you been paying any fucking attention over the last three years of what's going on? Like we're, we're clearly in the midst of the breakdown of the rule of law. And now like I, you know, to me, the fact that, that people aren't actively liquidating most of their property for Bitcoin seems fucking insane to me. You know, like I, I just don't understand how you could look at what's going on in the world and not be like, you know what, I at least need to hold some of this. And it's uh, it goes to speak to how powerful the propaganda is. Once again, I think a lot of people look at what's going on and they just can't believe that something like that would happen here. And I want to be clear to anybody who's listening. It's absolutely happening here and you need to get fucking prepared for what's coming because we're going to have three hundred dollar barrels of oil. We're going to have fifty dollar gallons of milk. And we're going to have a, you know, a social credit system that if you bought more than your one pound of red meat for the month, you're not going to be able to buy anymore, you know, and it's fucking scary. And I really hope that as, you know, that, that we're going to figure out, and actually I, 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 I couldn't tell you why, but I feel more confident than anything over the next decade that whatever's bubbling up through Bitcoiners, that this is going to become an extremely powerful movement that I think is going to recover all of the West and more and kind of open up a, a new political ideal for the world utilizing cryptography and the internet as its core practices to organize. Can't tell you why or how, but like this is part of my crazy messianic vision for what's going to happen with the world. Right. Well, it's my hope and vision as well. You know, as we, we, we always are just, uh, you know, the in-between is murky. Uh, but, you know, when, when the emergency, the Emergencies Act was being discussed and then invoked in Canada, and of course, over the last two years of COVID, I mean, I, I thought about your piece a lot, right, uh, about how like, you know, push comes to shove, like, emergency is invoked so that whatever power apparatus and whatever political, uh, you know, philosophy or ism you might ascribe to it, they'll invoke emergency to carry out whatever they want to or whatever conforms to the narrative that they're peddling and that's the thing that seems so common to me these days is like it, it, everything is uh you know without due process let's say i mean every everyone it seems like narrative is what drives everything it's like the, the, we're so untethered from truth we're so untethered from foundational principles that we you know that i think we're probably pretty hard fought and pretty you know like we, we, we got them and we realized the importance of them and integrated and integrated them into society, like with a lot of difficulty. And then I think you could make a case. And you know, like I said before, I, I've been a massive critic of the status quo for pretty much my entire life. So I'm by no means like an apologist for it, but I think there are, we could point to a lot of benefits of the stability that was created as a result of, of having some appreciation for some worthwhile principles. And now we just seem to be in a state where like we completely forget the importance uh, of those foundational principles and everything is just a matter of opinion and narrative. You know, even to the point of, you know, this may trigger some, but even to the point of like, 
biological sex. It's like we we no longer can even, we can't even agree on something like that, like a a fact like that, that is contentious. So no, so if something is as blatantly obvious as that is contentious, I mean, we have no hope in the realm of like political discourse and geopolitics and, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, we're, we're completely fucked if we can't agree on such overt, simple distinctions between things. Yeah, I mean, I actually think like this is part of uh, like a generalized destruction of language that has been uh, cultivated in a very powerful and thoughtful way in order to, you know, like I think a lot about 1984 and this idea of two plus two equals five and like how that was made tenable uh, by by Winston. And also at like the the very end, the in the appendix of 1984, there's a great essay by Orwell about about like how it's all about language and, and how by controlling language, what ends up happening is you, you make certain thoughts completely untenable. And like, that's, that's the whole idea, you know, and this, this idea about biological sex, I think um, some of the things, you know, and like, look, first of all, like solidarity to, to whoever and however you identify, but the fact that the, the West is out here or that the left is out here patting themselves on the back for the fact that uh, they get, pronouns in people's profiles but meanwhile wealth distribution has you know over the last two years from covid specifically four trillion dollars have been taken from the poorest and given to the richest to me that that's a great sign of the distraction of like okay well you might have one on the pronouns front but all of the shit that really matters like how to live and survive like you guys have sacrificed that entirely in order to just be able to feel better about how you get to talk about people in addition to me, like, I've always been sort of suspect about the narratives here because, like, is it really just about gender identification? Because if a, if a, I guess one of the things that always disturbed me about both feminism and trans narratives is that it, it doesn't seem to have greater solidarity with women and motherhood or about the ability to give them the actual material means in order to survive. And so I've always been very suspect about uh, that it's about something much greater. And I feel like this is a, where a lot of the dialogue is, is that like, if, if we can start making all of these smaller things much more contentious in the focus, you know, meanwhile, you know, if people are debating each other so thoroughly about the idea of how these small linguistic things go on, you can have huge robberies going on across the board where people aren't paying any attention. And uh, you know, I'm like, meanwhile, while they're stealing trillions of dollars from the treasury, they can go, well, you know, that person over there, they they don't have solidarity with it, so you guys should go fight them. And I think, it, and I actually think a big part of it is is the psychological aspect of the left having lost for so long on so many fronts. It finally found something that was small enough that it could actually affect an attack, and so it clung to it because it feels like a great victory. And I was I was watching this. Uh, there was a thread the other day about. Uh, some guy coming into a Texas school to kind of talk about trans stuff or whatever. And anyways, the left was all up in arms. They disturbed him. They made a big ruckus the whole time and kicked him out. And that was this big, great victory for them. Meanwhile, like in, in the same state, like the left has lost so fucking hard on so many fronts that they don't even really remember or realize what their objectives were originally. You know, and, and frankly, this is one reason why I abandoned a lot of the position on the far left was that they're not winning on anything. They're, they're not aligned with their principles anymore. And they've gotten lost in a lot of this bullshit dialogue. Um, 
And I actually think that this is the production of kind of this new political turning that we're seeing is because the left has been destroyed. So what's going to replace it? And I think that that offers some good opportunities if people want to actually pay attention to what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm, I agree with everything you said, I, I, but as you're saying it, I'm just like, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good point to make that to point to like other things happening beneath the surface, whether it's, you know, different narratives. I, I often think, you know, you said like, what's actually going on here, what's being fought for. And it could just be simply like people want to feel people that subconsciously or not are so feel so powerless they want something to grab onto that makes other people conform to their will that's power and they just want to feel a piece of that because so much has been taken from them and they may be, you know un, unbeknownst to them so if i can just make someone call me a certain way or if i can just make someone do a certain thing or if i can just pass a policy that make this or that happen then i maybe i feel empowered i've I've taken a piece of that authority that that I'm subject to and I am I get to use it now and it empowers me and like in the most you know in a, in a in a way that I think you and I would be critical of right that's a a type of empowerment that we probably want to be very well that we're very averse to we want to get empowerment through alignment with higher principles rather than forcing people to conform to our will let's say but you know the I feel like this falls in the category of like clown world destruction. So I'm not sure how much time we want to spend on trying to understand it, but there, there is one thing that I've been meaning to ask you this, you know, the last three uh, episodes we've done. And cause we, we talk a lot about justice and we talk about how these principles are being removed and everything is narrative and all that kind of stuff. And obviously the hopeful, hopeful future that Bitcoin represents. What do you think justice looks like? in a hyper Bitcoinized world. And maybe you'll necessarily have to uh, consider the role of the monopoly on violence in that world as well, because I know you've studied a lot on anarchy and we've discussed it a little bit before, and I think it's still probably your part of your political orientation. So what is the role of the monopoly on violence in a Bitcoinized world and how is justice carried out? What does it even mean actually? Oof. Really great question. Um, so I get, <clears throat> I guess first of all, I'd say it's uh, it's very personal, it's very messy, and it's very transparent. So to me, in a hyper Bitcoinized world, part of how justice is served is through the same panoptic orientation that because uh, the the blockchain is panoptic, but it's all blinded. And so I think through the same mechanism, we have an ability to document things immediately and produce them. And so, you know, for example, like crime has been committed by an individual. I think that there's an ability to use a smart contract to essentially say, hey, a crime has been committed. We need to have other actors show up to, you know, see what's sort of occurring here to verify if an injustice has been done. They can verify that. I think at that point in time, actually, what ends up happening is whatever justice needs to be carried out becomes quite personal. Uh, and I also think that this is one of the places that I actually think modernity has made us extremely immature, is that violence is an implicit part of reality in life. Uh, and the fact that we have relegated that out to states and other people, uh, I think 
is the greatest immaturity and the greatest injustice that has been done because uh, look like like violence and killing is wrong regardless of whether it's individually or personally but that doesn't mean that we don't still have to take part within it it's more about reflecting upon needing to engage in those things and to be mature and responsible about it um, and I and so essentially in a hyper bitcoinized world I think that there probably becomes all sorts of new actors, whether they're, you know, digital lawyers and representatives, prosecution, uh, detectives, but these are all sort of these market-based mechanisms that are crowdfunded, utilize smart contracts, are transparent. You know, and essentially when these crimes are documented in such a way, whether, you know, an assassination or violent market comes up or whatever, individuals have choices in that. But I also think uh, in this future, there's going to be a much greater responsibility placed upon us to enact those forms of justice on our own. Uh, and I think a lot about, you know, like the insane kind of graphic novels that I pick away at about part of how this gets produced is it's very violent, you know, like I, I would, love to see people you know confront these people that are doing evil shit in the world like Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and others and to hold them fully accountable and to ask themselves you know what do you need to do to these people to actually hold justice and again like I want to point out this is very very messy it is very complicated and I'm sure that there are going to be lots of wrong turns around the way but if we compare that to what's going on with statism I mean you know, look at the 20th century. We're talking about tens of millions of innocent people having been killed over the concourse of many different regimes. And frankly, when I look at that, I say there, there's nothing to compare it to. You can't, it's impossible to justify that in any way, shape, or form, including if we go into an anarchic world. Uh, and to be very clear, like, anarchy does not mean, like, willy-nilly chaos, it means an order of a different kind, an order of a natural kind. Um, and I think part of that is, is us being willing to take responsibility for ourselves. And I think a great question is like in this new world, if someone was to invade my home and I was forced to kill them, you know, I, I would kill them. I would document all of it. And then I would, you know, not only upload that to the blockchain, but, you know, kind of have have all of my arguments for why I had to do this and the documentation and say, look, I murdered this man because he invaded my home. Here's the documented proof of why it happened. If other people want to hold me accountable for that, please do. But I think that this should absolve me of it. Um, and the other thing I just want to point out is we just don't know what it looks like yet. And we can't know what it looks like yet because there's all sorts of different apparatuses and things to be tried and opportunities. But that's what the, I specifically want to reserve for the future is it's very clear to me that statism doesn't work at all to serve justice that uh it, it actually makes the idea of justice impossible and that by us removing it there at least becomes the potential for us to try to rediscover it on our own uh but at the end of the day the idea of the state serving to create justice for us uh i, I think it's heinous and uh it, it's immature and irresponsible you know because like these these aren't people that are interested in serving justice they're interested in something else and i think that that needs to be kind of the main prerogative to focus on do you think a ultimate 
authority is required. And the, like the other piece of that question is how, like Bitcoin is going to change the logic of violence, right? To borrow the sovereign individual term. And I, I, that makes a lot of sense, I think, to a lot of us. But power will still play a role. And I'm wondering what role power will play, like physical power, force. Um, and then, you know, the more specific, I guess, aspect of this question is we live in a world with, with nuclear arsenals. Uh, what happens to those in a world where, you know, a, no, no supreme government authority, is, you know, maintains power, let's say, you know, you know, we're, so we're kind of like the, the, I these love that the you asked this question because I because I just was researching this the the other day. Uh, the the nuclear question it, it it's it's engaged uh, simply by market based mechanism. You know, like we we obviously need more energy, which this whole crisis is pointing out. And it actually turns out that here in the United States, one of the key components to how we've been creating nuclear reactors since the mid two thousand is through the decommission process. You can actually take a lot of those nuclear armaments remove a lot of the nuclear material from it and repurpose them for nuclear power plants. And it's very obvious to me if we're going to continue to grow as a species and if we eventually want to become an interplanetary species, we need to have massive amounts of nuclear power. And it turns out that the nuclear arsenals will serve that very, very well. Um, furthermore, I think how this apparatus of power ends up happening is that there can be more transparency uh, and there needs to be, there's going to be entire leagues, I think of, of people that are going to restrict power. There, there's a, a great quote from John Adams about state power, about the, the real purpose of state power is for power to restrict power. Like that's the entire idea is that essentially you can use the states to hold back the federal government and the federal government can use its power to hold back state governments when they're violating each other. And I think that as we witness kind of the fall and the transformation that's gonna happen politically across the globe, I think we get these massive networks uh, that are interconnected and interrelated, utilizing these technology and techniques of cryptography and networking in such a way that, again, I don't know what exactly it looks like, but essentially, I think that there are ways to call upon collectives of people in order to enact various things. In addition to like, you know, I, I think in this new world, like stuff gets pretty messy and like things do become more violent per se. But I don't think that that's a bad sort of violence. I think that it becomes a necessary component of self-responsibility and self-accountability. And furthermore, I think when people choose violence, I think it'll be transparent actions where they justify it. You know, and they go, look, I didn't want to choose violence here, but here are the things that happened that meant I had to choose violence. And if somebody documents these things and it turns out that that was wrong, well, there's the transparency for it now. But again, this is all gonna be very messy. And I think that it's all gonna take, you know, generations to come through. But I think part of those turnings are essentially us learning that the fiction of justice that we've been given is just that, it's a fiction, you know? And I think when you look at the real facts of what statism has produced over the last century, it's terrifying, you know? Uh, the fact, you know, as we were stating earlier, the United States over the course of the last, like, 
it's it's true madness when you look at the fact that over the last 70 years, the United States has bombed 30 different countries on different occasions. Like, what the absolute fuck? Like, how, how can an idea of justice even exist in a world where we're dropping random munitions on people because we don't like their fucking political perspectives? That's insanity, you know? And I want to make sure that that never happens again. Even if what those people are doing are all the things that you want to say are heinous and justify that bombing, great. Pick up a gun and go in there and fucking fight them. Go shoot the people that you want to bring that sort of violence to instead of dropping random munitions hoping that you fucking hit them. Like, don't be such a chicken shit fucking coward that you want to sit down in your computer terminal in Arizona and go blow up fucking brown people on the other side of the planet, you chicken shit motherfucker. And just to be clear, anybody who participates in that stuff, like, you should be fucking ashamed of yourself. Like, how disgusting that you would ever engage in something and be fucking dumb enough to believe that there are other people that are like, yeah, go fucking blow up brown children because they're associated with the Taliban. Like, get fucked, man. Like, ugh, I yeah. hate that shit. I agree. I agree. And it's it's a tragedy and it will be condemned and seen as such in the future, you know, that that uh violence was enacted so indiscriminately in the name of what in the name of a false pretense in the name of an ideology in the name of a disagreement about whatever to the point where you know oh we we took out the whole wedding party but we also took out the supposed terrorists so you know mission accomplished you know i i think history will be very unkind to um the forces that participated in that i'm wondering if you think that there's any how much do you think that we have now will be useful or carried over into a future system of governance that we engage in? Uh, and I'll, I'll contextualize that a little bit by saying, I see like the state of the union, right? Or watch clips of it and see Nancy Pelosi up behind, like they're all, you know, Biden says something and well, she like poked up. She looked really I know, I know. She's, she's, she's a fucking mannequin at this point, but you know, they, he says something, they both stand up, they cheer, they clap. Oh my God. Like it's this, it's such a production, right? It's, it's straight out of hunger games really. Or yeah, I think it was on hunger games, the, the movie, but so there's that, right? It's so clown worldish. It's so off the rails. It's so absurd. It's going to end in disaster. But then, you know, you have some people engaging the existing political apparatus, mostly in red states right now, that look at something like Bitcoin and say, oh, that conforms to the very principles that I am trying to uphold and that I believe this system is predicated on individual liberty and, you know, the ability to voluntary voluntarily act, you know, those, those sorts of things, other principles of liberty and freedom. Uh, so I'm going to try to engage this system of governance to amplify those things and to uh, make the case for them, right? So we have politicians entering the fray now, and maybe they're doing it out of self-interest, right? Because maybe politicians just naturally skew to be, you know, self-serving, uh, and more egotistical than the rest of us, but they, there's, they are trying to uphold more so than let, let's say, you know, the Uber lefties or, you know, the people that I was just describing the, the principles that founded in particular, the United States more so. And like, there, there's, there's some really good stuff in there, right? Like execution wise, perhaps it's gone off the rails philosophically, 
a lot of good, right? Definitely can be improved with, with, you know, we're hundreds of years later and everything's in evolution, all the caveats, but to what degree do you think, uh, what's, what's currently existing can simply be improved or does it all have to be recapitulated from the ground up? Oh, it's funny. I talked with Dennis Porter about this kind of at length and, uh, like, like solidarity, the fact that like you guys want to go try to integrate this into the political network, but like I, I think it's a fool's error. Um, I do think, however, what's going to happen is essentially like as this is brought into the political framework that it starts transforming it in a powerful way because, mm -hmm. again, the state of emergency wants to destroy it. There are politicians who have had it. State of emergency, as it tries to destroy it, figures out that it can't. I think politicians within realize that now we have to integrate this stuff directly into the legal framework. Uh, I think here in America, we have a greater chance than anywhere else to do that vis-a-vis -vis states, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Article 5, which is how you can ratify the Constitution without the federal government, um, and with states choosing to do what they want on their own. And I think that as this stuff starts to integrate itself into the political framework, people are going to figure out pretty quickly that like this isn't right or left. Like This is actually like core, classic liberal ideals that we need in order to actually recover the West, particularly in this time of great crisis. And I actually think that that's going to be part of the production of a, of the new political. And I think it actually culminates totally with there being a, constitu a constitutional convention called in the United States, where we actually completely rewrite the American constitution from top to bottom, integrating many of these principles into it. Uh, and from that, it'll actually be a bastion in the West that will cause for a revolutionary wave that look very similar to the American Revolution. And with that being said, I actually think that there's going to be these really deep interactions specifically between Americans and Canadians, where we're going to have a deep influence on one another's uh, renewal of these liberalism ideas in the exact same way that you know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution had an extremely deep relationship with, you know, like the fact that fucking Thomas Jefferson was a key part of both of, you know, writing the rights of man and, you know, the Declaration of Independence, I think we'll see something very similar happen. And it's going to be pretty cool because I think uh, this is going to be how we get this political transformation. Um, and I think in some countries it will look like everything gets burnt down and recreated through a revolutionary perspective, but I don't think that's going to be the, the way that it's done specifically in America, just because we have done a pretty decent job at keeping a lot of the framework between states and the federal government operable. And with that, let me uh, go to the restroom real quick while you're sure. up. I'll grab some water. You know, I've also thought for myself about, you know, declaring the the foundation of the Orange Party and, and trying to lead something like that. But like that just all leads to like this really deep fascism. Like I, I you don't want me running a political network. It's it, it all goes super fucking bad. So, yeah, but I funny think... enough, I actually think uh, that I brought up Dugan earlier and I think it's interesting because uh a lot of my theory lines up with Dugan, but at the very bottom, instead of essentially there being an ethno-nationalism and a sort of fascist, latent fascism that plays out, 
there's a turning where essentially we get like a fascism vis-a-vis cryptography where like it's a fascism that's led by like a nobody by like an anonymous individual and i think that that's actually the the way that like you capture the same apparatus of power but like it doesn't play out with all of the horrific things because like it can only be ran by somebody who is unknown but that's a that's a a, a future philosophical exploration that i'm pretty interested in well it, it's i mean i think it relates fairly well to what bitcoin is you know bitcoin is a type of tyranny because you have no say well you have no say in in the rules of bitcoin right like you you can opt in or opt out, but you can't change them. And so that's a, a type of tyranny. I guess the difference is, is the way in which it imposes itself on you, uh, well, is less violent. I mean, it's certainly going to be um, persuasive in a way, right? Because what are the costs of not uh, conforming to the rules of this tyranny? Well, they're going to become more extreme as we move forward, right? So like it is coercing you or persuading you or whichever you know word you want to use in in a sense and so it is a a kind of tyranny and as you were you're speaking about the political you know the potential form of of politics and political structure in the future i mean it, it seems to me that like bitcoin is a trojan horse right and this this has been the point this point point has been made before and if you can't change it then anything that seeks to house it or attach to it or integrate it, that thing is necessarily going to be the one that has to change, right? Because the former cannot. So what I see happening is the political and the social, and as we often discuss, even the personal dynamics at play that end up paying attention to Bitcoin and then integrating Bitcoin in some capacity, they end up being the ones that get molded by this unchanging immutable thing, because there is no alternative. They have to. And owing to the fact that it's so integral, that it's dealing with you know, the most consequential thing, i.e. value, its expression, and its transmission, it, I mean, it, it, it has to be attended to by almost everything. And that means it almost has to, it, that, that un, inarguable one-way street of, of transformation or formation of, of Bitcoin forming those institutions and people that attempt to engage with it, is inevitable and is going to be very widespread. And so I think like the process that we're probably going to observe over the next however many years or decades or generations is like, you know, all of these institutions, all of these people coming, bumping up against this thing, intending to change it for their ends, and then slowly realizing, oh, that can't happen. And then just slowly capitulating, 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 capitulating a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, until at some point in the future, what we have is, is, a, is a structure or a system that was formed by the very principles of the unchanging thing, or that was formed by the very unchanging principles contained in Bitcoin. And that's, you know, I think this is part of the reason why we, we, we use the term messianic when we describe it, because it's an instantiation of, let's say, the highest values and principles, truth, freedom, love, let's say, in their most unchanging form, right? Because you might say that, well, these principles are, are evident in many things, you know, and evident in relationships, evident in one's own divinity, that kind of stuff, but in their most unchanging form. And as a result of that, it just keeps pressing those principles onto and into 
the different entities that it comes in contact with that attempt to integrate it, be they personal or institutional. And, you know, I think that's how we get the chain. And so the question really becomes what's left over to be quote unquote dealt with, to be managed once, you know, that process has like done the bulk of its work. Once those principles have been necessarily unavoidably pushed in to the different entities that, that end up coming in contact with and attempting to integrate it, what's left in terms of, uh, well, what we need, what our, our desired ends for collaboration and coordination that cannot be, that aren't handled by such a process taking place. And, you know, so this, one way I characterize this is I think the future is gonna be a lot less explicit. And by that, I mean like laws will be less explicit, approaches to spirituality will be less explicit. You know, economic theory obviously will be largely redundant and therefore less explicit because it will be built into and it will inspire direct behavior and it will, it will necessitate conformity to certain principles rather than having to make those principles explicit and then erect institutions to coerce, persuade, force people to abide by them, which is kind of the overarching structure or approach that we have today necessarily, right? So it's this really interesting, I mean, that's fascinating to me that we're, we're contending with something that's gonna not only have such profound effects on so many different domains of experience, be they individual, spiritual, political, economic, but that the, and this kind of runs counter to our natural impulse to like fix things and do things, right? We want to be involved in the process, but I think so much of it is going to be explicit. That's why I think like maybe the best thing that we can do is stand, well, first of all, contribute to that thing, right? Rather than getting super involved in politics, just keep making Bitcoin more capable of achieving the ends that it, the potential that it, it already has, right? Like rather than like trying to change laws so that like people aren't jailed for transacting in Bitcoin, make Bitcoin more private, make it more able to be used without that even being a consideration. And then the laws will necessarily have to change or be made redundant on their own. Um, but so maybe our, our purpose here is one, of course, contribute to and focus on Bitcoin. But it's almost like I get the sense that the world is going to become more quiet with Bitcoin because so much will be implicit rather than explicit. And, and then, you know, I, I guess to the point about how that same process is happening to so many things, I mean, it almost seems like, and we might've touched on this in our last discussion, I'm not sure, but I think I, I made the, I commented that, you know, when Nietzsche said God is dead, he may have been, um, and we killed him and blah, 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 the rest of it, but he may have been, uh, attempting to refer to the socio-cultural or political consequences of, of the quote-unquote death of God, like a, a loss of spirituality religion. Um, but the point we were discussing there was kind of like the nexus of value and meaning being highly consequential in the economic domain as well. And so that comment can also be construed as having economic uh, meaning. And as we keep dancing around the implications of what Bitcoin is, and we keep asking that question and we keep making these investigations, it's almost like the economic, the political and the spiritual are condensing down into the same thing. 
or like something very, 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 very similar. And so that's really cool. That's really fascinating. And then also maybe by virtue of that or simultaneously, it's becoming more and more and more implicit and less and less explicit. So it may be the case in the future that our approach to spirituality and religion and our approach to economics and our approach to politics is going to become far more implicit, therefore requiring less of all, you know, the explicit theories, ideologies, structures, and that kind of stuff that we've been, well, that are common points of discussion and that, you know, we've been discussing a little bit here today. Well, what's pretty funny is, uh, you know, that, that Trinity, if you will, uh, like that, that's kind of how everything was before statism, you know, the, the economic, the spiritual and the political were all integrated into a single thing. And like, that's, that's how the world operated. So it doesn't seem to be too far fetched for me that, that we can move back to that. But, uh, yeah, I think this movement towards <clears throat> essentially how Bitcoin is going to transform. So it is going to quiet things because like stuff, frankly becomes like normal and logical again that like the because like right now the entirety of our being is dedicated towards trying to solve this riddle that's wrapped in an enigma that's inside of a mystery that is what society is without being tethered to truth so everything's just this constant panic and swimming and turning and confusion of, of trying to figure that out you know and so like if we move out 400 years to where everybody is on a Bitcoin standard and that's just how the world operates, like things become much more normalized because economic principles make sense that the political principles align with those economic principles because they have to, and that these all align with the spiritual principles because it all follows the same line of truth that doesn't have uh, fiatism integrated into it. And I, and I really like this idea of fiatism because fiatism is inherently authoritarianism that you've declared to be true, which like is fucking insane, but that's what we live within. Uh, you know, and like it's, uh, to me, it's also messianic because like how beautiful that we get to like recover and rescue ourselves from, you know, like if you go, go talk to a non-Bitcoiner right now, like they're just gonna, they're gonna, tell you about their their various prescriptions to different kinds of black pills and all of the various shades <laughs> that they have them in because you know shit's really fucked up um and you know what's really funny is uh do you know the the philology of the word evangelical it's uh like it actually means in latin to be the bringer of good news the spreader of good news mm. you know and i just think it's really funny is that like that's all that we're doing is, is we're spreading the good news of what Bitcoin is and how it's going to change the world. And um, it's really funny because I feel like the, the strongest thing that holds Bitcoin back right now is how absolutely unbelievable it is. I think so many people look at it and they go, no, like that can't work. And, th and that's why like the whole crypto conversation is so funny is because like that's how they've appropriated it. it is Bitcoin's just too good to be true. So like, look at my shit coin. It's, you know, it's obviously shittier than Bitcoin, but perhaps there's real truth to it because it integrates better with this fucked up world. Um, you know, and I, and I honestly think that uh, like, as this all accelerates and as the questions that you and I have been asking, it's going to become more and more clear that like, this is all just a spiritual conquest. Like that's all it is top to bottom. And it's about producing into the world a means of truth that can't be appropriated, contorted, or turned against itself. Um, 
yeah, you know, and I think we'll wind up in the gulags and become matriarchs for this cause, which again, like it's all like a fun thing to talk about up until like I'm being pistol with repeatedly. Um, but you know, like it, if this is the cost to have that world, like so be it. Um, I agree, but let's not fuck, like, let's I, not fucking just, let's not acquiesce to that fate too soon, right? Like we got some we got some fight in us if that if it comes down to that, but we're we're gonna do our damnedest to see the good times, right? I'd rather be sitting on a porch with you when we're 80, having a cold beer, watching the sunset rather than, you know, an untimely end in the gulag. So let's not, let's not manifest that into reality too easily. All right. <laughs> yeah. And just to be clear, like when they come for me, like they're going to fucking pay with blood. And like, <laughs> um, you know, like there's a, there's this great movie. I might have brought this up before, but there's a movie from the 1990s called Ransom with Mel Gibson. Mm. Uh, are, are you familiar with it? Yeah, he just wrecks house on everyone. Is that the one? Uh, a bit, but so like he he has a scene where like the dude abducts his kid and he wants like two million dollars in ransom for his kid. So he like goes on the newscast and like has all of the cash in front of him. And he's like, "Here's right. the two million dollars that like you want for my child." And he's like, "I want to be clear, like this is as close as you fucking get to it because this is all money that goes on your head." And so like, return my son now and walk away, or like have the wrath of this come down on you. And to me, like, that's what I want my Bitcoin to be when they come for me is I go, look, motherfucker, like you can retreat or this is what happened. And I think it's really important that like part of the apparatus of Bitcoin with its panoptic capacities as well is that like now we have this way to monitor, you know, those people as well. And part of my dream is that all the people that participate in this shit, we label them, identify them and make it clear that like we bring this to their fucking home front too. Um and also on this note, like that, that's why all the 3D printing gun stuff is really important and why self-defense and understanding it's important is because, yeah, like I'm not going in the gulag quietly and I'm also going to struggle once I'm there too. So uh, hopefully we won't have to deal with any of that. But I think if we want to be thoughtful and logical, uh, both physical training and weapons training is an important key aspect that I hope most of you have have entertained and uh, have focused on as well because I think it's a, a very important feature that uh, as much as I want to say hey let's have peace and nobody hurt and that we don't need violence I do think sometimes a leveled weapon towards somebody saying if you move forward I will kill you is a very important thing to be able to say um, and again I hope that these things don't come to it and I do hope that we will find political solutions but I don't know, man. I just think that like there's going to be this moment that the state realizes like how much it's absolutely fucked up and that like instead of it capitulating, it's just going to be like kill all the Bitcoiners like, you know, anybody who kills a Bitcoiner gets their Bitcoin. And like, you know, that's well, let me that's ask you, how the apparatus sets off. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm familiar with your uh, your thoughts in that regard. And I, I, I don't discount them, right? Like it's obviously a possibility because things can get really, really, really weird when we're confronting the degree of change and shift that, that we are. And I, I think, um, you know, that comedian JP Sears with the long red hair, um, yeah, yeah. He, he, he did a good one about his changing uh, viewpoint on guns recently. And I think it probably resonates with a lot of people. Like, you know, I remember, I don't know if we mentioned this on the last one, but... I remember when Bush uh, 
failed to renew, I think, the assault weapons ban. And at the time, I was just like, what possible motivation could you have for doing that, for, you know, for making it easier to access, you know, military grade weapons? Uh, and I like I was never really like an, an uber lib, right? Like I, I, I never really fell anywhere clearly on the political spectrum. It, it was a case by case thing for me always. But, you know, I was anti-violence. And I guess at the time I have a, had an overly simplistic view of like the relationship between guns and violence. And I, I failed to appreciate uh, the role of the state in that in that dynamic. Um, and now, you know, I think a lot of people realize like, well, sure, you, you should have the right and the, the ability to defend yourself and to, def to defend your family, number one. And that's that I think a lot of people think that's a more realistic use of of, let's say, you know, guns and gun laws. But I think more and more people in this day and age are also realizing like the whole reason why it was the law was written, particularly in the U.S. as it was, is because they realize that no matter how brilliant of a political apparatus and balances and checks, checks and balances that you build into it, it can still become corrupt because people are corruptible. And the final balance of uh, the final check and balance on power is an armed citizenry so that the degree of tyranny that the, the state apparatus can exact on them is limited in some way. And, uh, you know, so I'm very sympathetic to uh, what you said about, you know, for lack of a more all encompassing term, just being as prepared as one can be for whatever eventualities. Uh, I'm like you, I'm hoping it doesn't get to that. And I'm hoping, well, one thing, you know, like if you look at everything through the lens of demand, right? I, I think Bitcoin is going to deliver very, very efficient markets. I think that's pretty uncontentious amongst Bitcoiners, right? And so if there's a demand, it will be satisfied by the market. And if the situation or circumstance that you're describing befalls us, I mean, if there's an elevated demand for protection by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of well-capitalized people or people with the means to avail of such services, then the services available for protection are going to proliferate dramatically, right? So what, what kind of services will emerge? Who knows? But I, this goes back to the what we were discussing about the monopoly on violence, right? Like how does that ultimately become transformed? And you were saying like, maybe things become a little bit more violent, but a more on a smaller scale or in a decentralized way. Like, I certainly think it's the case that people will be bidding for protection services in the future, you know, and you, you'll like, just as you buy insurance, health insurance today, like you'll have some kind of, you know, violence insurance, protection insurance, because, you know, may, the state will lose its funding and it'll be less capable of providing the small degree of protection that it provides today because most of what they do is like you know they come in after the fact to try to exact justice not protection right very very seldom are you know police officers in the right place at the right time but I, but those services seem like a a no-brainer to emerge like who who wouldn't pay for them if, if they had the ability and like i don't know if that looks like uh you have your own bodyguards or if you have a swarm of uh quadricopters that like you know activate if you press a button on your phone or, you know, all sorts of different things. I think that will be a part of balancing out the monopoly on violence and the disparity in, in force uh, in the future. Yeah, that's my hope too, you know, like I'd, uh, yeah, I think it becomes these really crazy and interesting like market-based things, you know, where like 
you get a notification to your phone. It's like, oh shit, like I can get a 10th of a Bitcoin right now if I like grab my shotgun and like run down the street in 10 minutes, you know? Cause like, turns out that like, there are people trying to break down his doors and if I can repel them, I get paid, you know? Um, and I think that's really important because that, that responsiveness is like a key feature. But again, a lot of this is stuff that like we can't really see from our vantage point in addition to like, I really want to welcome and create the capacity for like the future to figure out and discover those issues. Um, like I was thinking the other day, like, it's really crazy to me that people want to make the argument that like statism and democracy is like the unilateral feature that like must be into the future. Cause like what would happen if back in the 15th century, people were like, yeah, like monarchs are it. Let's like, let's make sure that we can never ever leave a monarch's form of system. Well, there would have never been any capacity for us to figure out Republicanism and like how we would create that. And so like, I think, I think these aren't questions for us, but for our children or for future generations to kind of discover and figure out. And I think our main job is, is to, to focus on disassembling the current apparatus as we see and understand it for to create that space and opening for what we need. Um, and also, like, I think a really important feature of that is, is doing away with that schizophrenia and paranoia that I was talking about earlier that has captured the whole globe where everything is this fear-based response that has allowed for the absolute fucking heinousness and insanity of sadism to present itself. I mean, like the simple fact that we exist in a world where the idea of nuclear war, where we completely annihilate all biological life, like is winning is absolute insanity um you know and to me like this marries up with my thesis of that at the end of world war ii like uh state legalism absolutely shipwrecked itself in a way that is never recoverable and that we simply exist in a place of sort of this rogue legalized lawlessness that now governs the globe you know and like uh as americans like it's really sad and scary to think that just because we exist at the top of this structure that somehow the justification of drone bombings and these mass killings all over the place are happening. And again, like this kind of serves the, the failure of language and dialogue, but like, you know, people want to get all upset about the idea of armed Americans, you know, whether they're going postal or school shootings and how this is this heinous crime that needs to be addressed. But we won't focus on the fact that, you know, there's extrajudicial killings happening by our military on such vast scales that the sort of violence that we're talking about there pales in comparison to anything that can happen locally. Mm. And I think like these are all really important topics that need to be understood more thoroughly before we start freaking out about that, like we need to rescue our current forms of government and statism because otherwise, like we're all going to fucking die. And like, that's just more of this fear-based paranoia that prevents us from moving powerfully towards a better and more equitable future for everybody, just because we're scared, yeah. you know? And like, and I also want to reserve and say like, look, what's going to happen in the future we're talking about? Like, it's pretty scary and it's unknown. And who, who knows or understands the possibilities of it? But I want us to be courageous and moving forward towards that because like, we need that more than ever right now looking in the face of all of the insanity it, it you know th this bad shit crazy shit 
it's clearly endangering all of humanity much more than it, it's creating safety for us. And we really need to understand and regard in that such, you know, and just as the case in reference point, you know, we just saw 40 million Russians lose, you know, fucking half of their ability to purchase stuff. In addition to Ukrainians just having the, their shit bombed out of existence. Like, it's really important that we stop and ask, is this really how we want to live? Like, do these people really have our fucking interests at heart? Because at the end of the day, it's a lot of innocent people being killed for a lot of reasons that don't seem to make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me. Mm. And so I think we really need to stop and say, maybe the state shouldn't have the right to have these weapons of mass destruction and indiscriminate killing. And thankfully, we can address that with the money. Yeah, I think what you were saying about, because um, there's this obvious impulse and desire to have a vision for the future and to project it onto the world and to try to actualize it right but it, it's it's so often fraught with our own false assumptions our own biases our own blind spots our own insecurities all that kind of stuff right and so you know i think your response was right in that like it's it's not for us to and this is the problem so much today, whether it's the left, the right, the whomever, like everyone's trying to say, this is how the world should be, you know, and that gets us into so much trouble because that creates those, those, the, the tyranny of a, of a lack of attention that we started off this conversation with, where so much gets ignored in service of the thing that is presumed to be the most important thing, whether or not it, you know, and it may not be. And therefore the whole thing is, is predicated on false pretenses, let's say, or, or, poorly, um, poorly structured or poorly oriented. Um, so I think, you know, I keep coming back to this and this works on a personal level and this works on a interpersonal level, but I think the best we can do. And the reason why this all always ends up in, in spiritual territory as well is identify the most valuable or highest principles and values, right. And just try to basically lean into them. Let those orient behavior. Like when you see their manifestation out in the world, like socially and interpersonally, give them energy, give them attention, like amplify them. When you are discovering them internally and how they influence your behavior, lean into them. When you see them represented in other people, build those relationships and, and, and strengthen those relationships. And I think if we do that, what we end up, what happens is like emergent order gets fostered by those very, by the pursuit of those very principles, rather than presuming things should be a certain way, putting all our energy behind it, and then realizing at some point in the future, oh, actually, we kind of had some false assumptions there, or things changed, and it didn't work out. Like, I think Bitcoin is probably giving us one, an opportunity, and two, the wisdom to recognize that that emergent order is what we should most be trying to engage and our task perhaps is to engage it properly or optimally such that well we allow the best emergent order to emerge by pursuit by simply pursuing those those principles and not being too mm, oh, like not a t not being too controlling i guess in in trying to impose what we think is right or good or should be beyond that you know like it's yeah i mean and, and this is why to me like this is what the classic 
liberal ideas that established and founded America was about was it, it wasn't it wasn't about trying to control all of these things. It was about these core principled ideas that we could have be foundational to a system of emergent order that would produce itself by keeping the focus on those principles. You know, I'm like, I, I'm not an expert on any number of economic fronts. I might, I might be well read on them, but I sure as hell isn't going to declare myself an expert. But I can tell you what, I know that on the entire total economic scale, by having a form of money that is fair, cannot be debased and cannot be sold from people because we disagree with their principles, like that fundamentally transforms the economy in a positive and powerful way that aligns and incentivizes people in ways that I, I don't understand at all, but I know because of this core principled ordering mechanism that that makes it better. And I think by focusing on, on that, and not necessarily just as Bitcoin, but what does it mean when we finally have a government that is actually accountable to its budget in a meaningful way, as opposed to this absolutely ludicrous bullshit that we have going on right now. And I think like, Essentially, like this is what it becomes at the end of the day is it's about truth versus authority. And at the end of the day, truth is going to win because it's true. And it doesn't break down under its own authoritarian ideals that it inevitably will get wrong. And I was just, I giggled when you were talking a moment ago, just because I was thinking about like, think of how absolutely fucking wrong our government got this COVID shit. And how much they told us that they were right. And they told us it was for our safety repeatedly. And most of us fell for this shit. And this is what we get for it. You know, and I hope that it's a really great lesson to people to realize that authority does not equalize truth. And it's fucking nuts to me at how, how often we're just like four or five questions away to like shattering somebody's mind when they're like, you know, trust the scientists. Well, what does that even fucking mean? Like, trust which scientists? Like, trust which methodology? Like, you know, like, guys, if you really want to, to think hard about this shit, you, you need to understand we can't reduce ourselves to fucking sloganism because, like, that's literally what Stalinism is. And it's, uh, you know, I, I it, it just warms my heart that, like, every fucking day, more people come to our side and more people leave their side and they continue to fuck up and their hubris repeatedly drives people out and that uh you know it, it it's pretty awesome specifically uh more than anything like the feeling of them you know like i look at their system and it feels dark and shitty and manipulative and fearful and heartland like just all this fucking blackness Whereas like over on our side, like people are having fun and celebrating and enjoying <laughs> and speaking truth and like even having really contentious conversations. And within that contentiousness, they can go, whoa, hey, look, we're in disagreement, but we agree that this thing can help us and, and we're going to move forward on that. And like how beautiful to be able to help expose people to this in this day and age, because uh, so many people are blackpilled in a really deep way that. Uh, I think a lot of them can't save themselves from, and I totally get it. Uh, 
And I also think like the greatest irony at this point in time that I feel like stands in the way of me helping orange fill people is just, it just seems too good to be true, you know? And like how, how great that that's the problem that we have as opposed to it actually not being true. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think more and more that's actually going to be what draws more people in. And I, I don't do any orange pilling anymore. I'd like when people ask me that I meet, you know, uh, like new people I meet, ask me what I do. I usually just say, like, <laughs> I, I, I work for a Norwegian company you know, in media or something like that. Like, I, I don't even I almost don't even want to discuss it. But I do think that both on an individual level, me, you so many other Bitcoiners lives, like them being happier, healthier, stronger, more successful, more have a, a stronger community to access, like all those things, they're going to manifest in a quote unquote, more successful, more attractive life, right? And people are going to notice that. And then taken as a whole, I think people are going to notice that, you know, in a world that has so much uh, fear and despair and nihilism and anxiety and substance abuse and all of this crazy shit, there's a growing, you know, there's a growing um, parallel system where people are having fun, people are speaking their minds, people aren't, you know, people are developing strong relationships, people are, 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 you know, asking the big questions about meaning and value and truth. Like it's pretty awesome over here, and 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 I think more and more people, yeah, you know, number go up will always be a part of it, but I think as number go up. I don't think we're anywhere near number go up, no number going up, like subsiding compared to everything else. But let's say as like the juice kind of, as it, as it slows down a little bit, number go up one, the safety of like number, just not going down is going to become more appealing as we're finding, as we're seeing today in the world, but just opting in. (laughs) That's the new meme number, not go down. (laughs) Yeah. But just opting into this, way more awesome like parallel new emerging culture and world is is going to be probably more compelling than you know the financial gain that that might have brought in like the early cohort because the, the culture was less developed and the financial gain was more pronounced but now we're going into an area where like the quote-unquote culture is rapidly becoming differentiated from the the existing dominant mainstream status quo culture and you know number go up at some point will slow down and so that'll that'll have less of a pull so I agree. I mean, I, I, and, and as the surface area of it spreads, it only develops a, as it gets bigger, it only develops a greater gravity, right? And that, that accelerates the, the pace at which people are coming in. I mean, I still think it's fucking hilarious that like so many early Bitcoiners were like, well, like, look at this like fun thing. Like, well, it's kind of like messed with it. And like, maybe there was like one or two of us out there who was like, no guys, this will, like change, change everything. You don't understand. They're like, mm, yeah, sure. But like now that we've advanced far enough, like people not only are hearing that, but uh, like, I also think about, about uh, the piece that you wrote recently and this idea of the hero's journey. And I feel like we've helped cultivate this path of the hero's journey that any of us can take and we've all taken it in our own individual ways and each of us sort of telling our own story is is the story of our own hero's journey and getting to go through the full cycle and now like there are all of these different um like sages out here who can provide bits of wisdom and places where people can stop and reorient and help themselves go and there's a cadence that everybody can sort of go at their own rate uh, and it's really beautiful to like watch people 
rescue themselves from this nihilism that's so crushing. Um, and with that being said, like it, uh, like it really hurts me personally when I, you know, say the same thing with like what people are like, what do you do? Uh, it's funny because I always sort of oscillate between just being like, oh, like I work in tech. I'm like, the, I'm like, and then the other answer is like, oh, like I'm a Bitcoin high priest. And they're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm like a, I'm a Bitcoin high priest. I, I like help orange pill people. I'm like, help them understand God through this thing. Uh, that almost that like to, never You works. say that to people? I've, I've said that to people. Uh, that, like it's happened a number of times, particularly like if it's like a casual conversation where I won't meet them again. You know, the other one is, is just like, or I'm like, oh, yeah, like I work in Bitcoin. And they're like, oh, yeah, like, what do you think of Bitcoin? And I'm like, it's messianic and it's going to change everything on this planet and it's going to help rescue humanity from the absolute disaster we're in. And it's always just like, oh, oh, okay. So, so you, you think I should invest some? And then I'm like, yeah, it would probably be a good idea. Um, you know, but in all honesty, like, I just, I'll put on my freak flag and fly it. Like, I don't care what other people think. And I, I think it's really funny that, um, I don't know, even at this point that we still like, get resistance to this stuff. And that I think it's funny how often people still talk to me about all this shit when they know what my answer is. And I go, look, like, I converted all my wealth to this. It helped give me the lifestyle I have. I can speak my truth to power. I don't have to worry about a government stealing all of my shit, even if they label me as a terrorist or an enemy combatant. Like. Like, what do you, what do you want from me at this point in time? You want me to promise the number goes up? Like, why do you even give a shit about that? And I think like, this is the funny ontological process that happens is, you know, people come for the profits, but they stay for the prophecy, you know, like it, it's, uh, it becomes very clear that that's sort of the unwinding that happens, uh, you know, and to speak back to, to what we were talking about earlier, like, I don't think what Satoshi implemented was a form of tyranny, but an actual form of dictatorship, but like classic Roman dictatorship where you need a single individual to be powerful enough in order to perform what they're doing. And to me, what Satoshi did is the messianic action. Like he created more wealth than any other person on in human history. And instead of taking that wealth to enrich himself, he disappeared. You know, like the, that's so extraordinary that any human being could have the, the willpower and the integrity to do it. And the fact that Satoshi, you know, like clearly this man was fucking brilliant or whoever, whatever it was. And like, I think from the very beginning, they knew absolutely what was going to happen and they destroyed those private keys. And I think there was no way it'll ever get recovered. And I think they sort of knew the foundational thing that was happening then. I also like to think that like, you know, Satoshi's last message was that he moved on to better things. And I like to think he's just some casual guy out there has his own little farm and garden and is enjoying these very small things. And to me, like this, this is really what Bitcoin is about. Like who gives a shit about, well, I mean, people obviously give a shit about the wealth it creates, but it's about the freedom that it gives people to return to go live your life. Like you don't have to engage in this schizophrenia of trying to beat the 8% that they're stealing from you. You just have the security of knowing that the number of Bitcoin you have is the number of Bitcoin you have and that the network isn't going to inflate itself and how important that people, you know, and to me, like, this is the thing I love and think is the most important is so many people are out there wasting 
all of their lives, you know, trying to get an extra percentage, tenth of a percentage of wealth for some fun or something. We're all just wasting our time on this most ludicrous, stupid bullshit. And like, you know, you're you're a child of light and love and the spark of God exists inside of every one of us. And once we have the actual freedom to go live our lives as God intended, you know, like I, I imagine there's some eye banker out there that gets to become an herbal medicine guy that's healing people. And, you know, like people get to go do all the crazy shit that they're supposed to do. And I think about, uh, you know, that those two people that approached us at the club in Miami and how they, they told us that they got to go pursue what their life's purpose was because of the way that they committed themselves to Bitcoin night. I want that for everybody because we all need to be dignified to do the work that God intends for us to do in this world or whatever, you know, call it your higher power or your meaning or purpose or whatever. But like, you're not supposed to be stocking shelves at fucking Ikea for, you know, $14 an hour or whatever bullshit they've convinced of you, you know? And so to me like that, that's the most important thing as part of this hero's journey is, is taking this risk on yourself in order to free yourself. You know, like it's the, to me, it's the equivalent of like, we're in the concentration camp and I'm like, look guys, there's a fucking hole in the fence over there. And I get that taking the run to get to the hole in the fence is a risk. It's a big risk, but the guards aren't paying attention and we can get to it. If you run to that hole, there's a possibility that you can rescue yourself from this place. Or you can fucking stand here and believe that the slogan over the, the camp saying that work will make you free is real. Your choice, man. But like, I hope you make a break for it with me because I'm making a run for it. <laughs> Very well put, you know, and it, it makes me think of a concept I've been thinking more of lately and, and briefly touch, uh, put down in that piece, which is because you, you make this point about like people are just on the hamster wheel, right? Because they have to be. Uh, and if, if they're given an opportunity to really get off of that, well, then they're confronted with the questions like, oh, well, what should I do? And that question is answered by the, the question, what do I deem to be of greatest value? Because that's what I want to do. That's what I want to pursue. And in that sense, I think you could characterize freedom as union with value. And I think that's kind of like in the, in the, in the, in the spiritual sense, like what liberation is like, and in my piece, I, I characterize it as like, when you finally unite with the thing of greatest value, such that you are no longer subject to its judgment, but you're just, you're, you're, you're joined with it. Like maybe that is true liberation. And, and maybe the highest form of, li of liberation is union if is union with and in the highest value. And again, like we're, we're very deep in spiritual and religious territory with that. Like, you know, is it, is it truth? Is it love? Is it God? Whatever it is, like, I think freedom is union with that. And on a more practical day-to-day -day level, once you're no longer uh, trapped in, in pursuing something just for survival or something that you feel an obligation to, but once you're really able to uh, determine for yourself what you should be pursuing, then your landscape of value kind of awakens, you know, and you're like, oh, well, like what value and meaning do I find here and there? And what value and meaning can I discover or ascribe here and there? And then you, you go into them and you, the, the freedom you feel is when you actually unite with them, right? Like, let's say that, oh, I value time with my, my son, or I value time in nature, or I value time building something with people that I love that has, is going to have a positive impact. Or whatever it is, like 
whatever your, the things that you believe are valuable or meaningful are, your sense of freedom is predicated on actually engaging in them, is actually unifying with them, is actually becoming them in some sense. And so in that way, I think like freedom is the ability to engage in the process of uniting with value and also maybe the process of discovering, well, discovering the, the, the highest value to unite with something like that. And that's what delivers, I think, the best experience of existence, right? That's like, that's perhaps ultimately what we should all be striving for, but we get cut off from that process by not even being able to, well, engage in that process in the first place out of desperation and out of, you know, all the other uh, restrictions that come from not being able to, not being not even being able to have the freedom to start on that process because there's so many other concerns that we have to deal with first, something like that. I, it's funny because I think that, uh, and this is sort of the hilariousness of like this term crypto and the things it relates to, but I think that like uniting with that value, that first turning is really having the self-respect to value yourself and to value your own labor and output in the world by saying, I'm no longer going to use a money that's going to be inflated and taxed and manipulated and contorted for all the reasons of, of this external world. And through that turning of the discovery of the true value of yourself, it opens up the entirety of what it means to, to actually say, you know what, I'm worth more than $14 an hour at Ikea. I value myself enough that I'm going to pursue the things of value that, that I believe the most. And I actually think like one of the, the secrets of God, if you will, is that like once you love yourself in that way, God will then also reflect that love back into you by being like, look, by you pursuing this thing of value that, that you believe in first and foremost as your own highest values, you're going to discover values that other people share and, and that they reflect on as well. And whether, you know, that manifests itself as, as, you know, you go out into the world as a fisherman and you catch fish and share that with people, or if you want to educate people about, uh, you know, how, you know, they can use Bitcoin to help themselves or, or whatever that, by that turning of saying, I will value myself first and I will value, you know, my, my wealth and what it is I put into the world by participating in this. Uh, yeah. I, I think that there's this discovery of like what the real secret is. And like the real secret is, is that by loving yourself and valuing yourself before all of these survival mechanisms and the fear-based bullshit of fiatism, that there's this recovery that you start to understand what true value is and that you have the real purpose in the world to be who, you know, I keep saying who God intends you to be, but it's this idea that once you have a true ethics of self-care that says that I'm going to take care of myself and my wealth first and foremost as an ethics of responsibility towards myself, it unlocks this other world where that same ethical praxis then provides for you because you're taking your self-responsibility to say, I can't rely on these external things to give me that care. It must come from myself first. And then I think like, you know, as this all happens, you know, the things within Bitcoin allows for number to go up in the way that, you know, it will on any sort of a real time scale, you now have this new portion of wealth that you can use to care for yourself in a meaningful way. 
you know, and as we heard from that story, those individuals, they were able to go start the business that truly is their task and purpose in the world. You know, and I've had similar experiences for myself, you know, not just with, with writing and contributing to Bitcoin, but, you know, uh, my commitment to being able to go out and search for mushrooms, you know, like I had an experience selling $200 of mushrooms to like my local bakery recently that not only was awesome, but like, that's the most money that, that I've made, like as an entrepreneur doing stuff like that. And it wasn't because I wanted to pursue money. It was just like, Hey, there's shitloads of delicious mushrooms and I need to give them to some people. Guess the local bakery would like them. Yeah. I, I think that's a very good point. I think another way to characterize it is I think you have to, to be able to see something out in the world or, or per, maybe to see it, but at least to understand it, you have to see it, discover it, recognize it, understand it yourself first, right? Like how are you going to, how are you going to see the, the, the manifestations of love out in the world if you've denied them within yourself? Like, I almost think like it's a prerequisite in order to do that. And so I think that's another reason why the point you're making is yeah. So, so important. Um, one thing, this is way off topic, but I saw a tweet you made yesterday. I want to, I want to ask you more about it. And it was um, about a podcast by uh, someone who was a participant in the maps trials in Canada. Now, uh, oh yeah, she, I, I didn't, I didn't listen to that yet. I presume she's, she's, well, you sh if you listen to it, you can tell me, but it seems like she's very critical of, of how the, the trial uh, and the process and that kind of stuff went down. And then you were critical of, uh, seem to be our attempts at integrating these uh, very important experiences into like a modern medical or even legal framework. Do I have that right? Yeah, I only listened to part of it. So I, I don't want to project on her, but um, you know, it, it's interesting because at first, you know, I, I was a fan of this, but that I've seen more and more of it play out. I'm starting to realize that, that this isn't working. And, and one is, is that I think uh, the hierarchical framework of how they're trying to, to do this creates a power structure uh, that's just really available to, to abuse. Um, you know, and I know we've talked a lot about different psychedelics, but, but I assume that you've tried MDMA or, or have, has that been one that's been on your radar? Yeah. I mean, I don't you know, treat it. I don't treat it. I don't treat it like the, the, the sacramental ones, but I've definitely done it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in my experience of it is, uh, I, I think it's really dangerous now, actually. And like, I, I don't, I don't do it in public or, or really with other people outside of my, my immediate circle, just because of how vulnerable it makes you and how air judgment uh, prone one is towards being in that state. And so now I'm thinking more and more that that putting that inside of any of a legal context really creates uh, some really dangerous alignments that I don't think can ever be rectified. And it's not to say that, like, I, I'm still a big fan of decriminalization, uh, but I think creating these legal frameworks where we say the, these people are certified therapists to do this, who, who have the power to do it. In addition to like the the same consumerist structures, um, it, it seems to be really misserving and misaligned towards what I want it to be, which is much more of a spiritual and religious sacrament where people come and say, you know, I want to have this spiritual and sacramental ceremony. And, and again, I'm not sure how people provide the structure to say, hey, this is how we hold this for you. Um, 
but I'm, I'm feeling more and more convinced that trying to create legal structures and uh, like official frameworks, it, 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 it's a, a dangerous mission that uh, specifically hearing the stories of these people and the sort of abuses that happen, uh, it, it just really breaks my heart, you know? Um, and yeah, and I, I think maybe, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, you clarified in saying you're, you're pro decriminalization. So, I mean, cause I was part of the rebuttal would be like, well, isn't that preferable to like being thrown in a cage for, for pursuing these sorts of activities. But even so, I mean, like as so meant so much of this stuff, of course it's messy at the beginning because everyone's retarded and they don't know how to be going about this stuff. And it's trying to, it's trying to fit in like a, a, a legal framework that is so, to which something like this is so foreign but the way i see it is similar like to happen with marijuana right like it was medically sanctioned at first and then in many places became legal now that's not my preference my preference is for you should be able to do what you want to do and pursue what you want to pursue and my hope is that once it's legal that means market forces can figure out the best way to contextualize and offer these services even if they're offered in a, in a non-monetary means whatever but like we've both discussed a, a certain ambition in the future of like being somewhat involved in these, uh, these activities, because perhaps we think we have a certain proclivity in, in holding space or fostering them in some way or contextualizing them properly. And I just think like, if they were legal, like, sure, there's always going to be like a hierarchy of authority and we can just totally reject that if it's outright legal and say, yeah, you guys, go and do whatever you want with your, you know, whatever initials you have next to your name that thinks that think you that you think gives you authority over this stuff. But once it's legal, then market forces will dictate how to minimize the potential pitfalls of these things, maximize the benefit and that kind of stuff. So it seemed like you were opposed to legalization. And that's why I bring it up. And, and I'd still say I'm opposed because what I'm seeing is that actually market forces aren't applying, but that corporate forces are applying. Because like one of the things that's already happened here in the United States is they want to they want to have you taking actual psilocybin be illegal, whereas the medical grade bullshit that they fictionalize up that becomes what you can use. Um, yeah. But I'm saying, you but, know, I'm but like, the distinction uh, is I'm, I'm saying it should all be legal. Like, how could we not want that to be the case? Like, if you want to take pill form, medical form, go for it. But like straight up, you know taking psilocybin mushrooms off a cow patty and, and then putting a ceremony around it, like that should be just as legal. What would be wrong with that? Yeah, I guess that's why I just, I have a preference towards decriminalization because then you can still do that and have that be fine. Whereas what I'm seeing with the legal structure here is that they want to say, you can only do this if you're a therapist. You can only do this if you're using our pharmaceutical grade bullshit. You can only do this if it's held in this kind of a context. Whereas right. to me, like, I really want to leave this just in a spiritual way. And I want that to be, because like the other thing is, is like, from what I'm just seeing with the sort of uh, abuse that I've, because uh, this all came about, they, they have a New York Times series called Power Trip that kind of goes into the abuses that are happening around psychedelics. And to me, like, it's uh, like, it, it's such a deep, it, violation to know that people are going in this space doing molly uh you know getting that very high tension sexual energy and instead of 
a therapist being like, okay, I 100% understand what's that, that's what's going on. They fall victim to that same thing. And maybe it's unresolvable. I, I, I don't know, but uh, it's really had me take a step back and be like, I, I don't think that this structure of legalism works as much as a structure of decriminalization. Um, I guess. And again, like I'm, I'm pretty open to changing my ideals around this, but I just find right now there's this really serious danger of it getting caught in corporatism. Yeah, I guess my idea of legalization didn't carries fewer of the regulatory impositions that you might be seeing. And yours is probably more realistic because few things are just like totally like when they're made legal, they're like it's a total free for all. You know, there's often regulations imposed. And I agree that that is a danger. And perhaps decriminalization would just keep it in a more of a gray area without overt regulations being imposed on it. And maybe that would allow, you know, market forces to take place. I mean, I, th I still think like in, in the worst case, which may be the case that's prevailing now, like all that stuff would just be temporary, you know, because ultimately market forces would dictate that this is not the best way to uh, offer this experience or for people to have this experience. And, you know, unfortunately, mistakes would be made along the way, but I think ultimately it would sort itself out. I just, you know, basically I'm coming from the place like I want to see this get outside of the realm of you being thrown in a cage for pursuing them. Like that's step one, because that is just like, we talk about some of the more egregious aspects of uh, fiatism, fiatism and statism and uh, you know, the status quo that prevails today. Like that was my, you know, long before I was orange pilled. I mean, that was what got my blood boiling. It's like this experience that is ineffable and, and so held so much potential for positive transformation is literally something that you know if you meet the wrong judge or the wrong cop or whatever while you're doing it you could be thrown in a cage for several years of your life like it's if you want an example of how batshit insane the current you know status quo the current state of the world is that's it right there you know um so I'm, I'm, I just want to clarify, like, I'm a hundred percent with you in that. Like, I want to make sure that nobody's ever thrown in a cage again for that. My great worry right now is that, uh, this gets appropriated in the same way that, you know, it was appropriated for the CIA experiments in the 1960s, that this becomes a, a weapon that's used against people. And for a long time, I didn't think that was possible, but reading some of this series has made me realize how much that's possible because what I, what scares me the most is the idea of you know, okay, like come, come to your corporate LSD retreat. We're going to put you in this context and, and give you, you know, your, your hundred micrograms or your 150 micrograms and put on a blindfold and listen to woo, woo music. And now instead of you fully integrating this as an actual core spiritual experience to pivot from, we're going to use this as a way to quiet all of the things inside of you and say, now go back to your corporate job and feel more at peace because you've seen that thing. And like, that's what I'm super afraid of. Um, with that being said, if we have to legalize it first in order to do that, that's what it is. But that that's why I've really liked the idea of decriminalization. Because from my experience here in California, um, once we got medical marijuana in, in 1996, this created an opening essentially for that gray area to produce itself. And, you know, from 1996, 
2012, in my opinion, being a cannabis grower in California was was good prime time. You could you could grow, you could sell. Uh, the cops weren't going to harass you nearly as much. There was still problems, but even if you were caught, it was hard to pursue a lot of criminalization. Uh, whereas, like now, you know, you're caught growing eight plants in California, and you don't have your permits. Like they're fucking coming down hard on you, and so. I think from my own experience, seeing what legalization has meant here in California, in addition to, um, you know, like the, the fact that we have, like, the, again, the ludicrousness of the state, that, that most cannabis grown in the state now, instead of being outdoor in the sun, natural growth process, it's done in giant warehouses with, with LED lights, uh, no attention to the turpins or the contents that's being put into it. And it's totally extricated, in my opinion, from a lot of the more core aspects. And so this is why, again, I'm, I'm going to champion the idea of decriminalization over legalization, because I don't want to sacrifice these structures and to find ourselves in a place where, you know, they find me out there gathering from cow patties and they go, I see you got some psilocybin. You got, you got your license to be gathering? Oh, you don't? All right. Time for you to go to the cage. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and so uh, thanks for making me clarify that tweet because, again, solidarity towards getting the process of legalizing, make sure that nobody is ever thrown in a cage again. I really don't want it to become another tool that all of these structures have in order to manipulate people more and why I want to keep it in a spiritual context because I think both you and I feel very strongly that that is something that we want to provide. But I think uh, unless... There is that strong spiritual mission that's part of it, you know, because for me, at least in these experiences, because I've had them with many people and I've had similar things. Contexts have been able to be set up not only to where such abuses can't happen, but also I know that because of my own commitment towards God and what's happening, that that must be maintained integrally for myself in order to be able to move forward in a meaningful way and and not trick or manipulate myself into saying, oh, you know, like, it's okay that I did these abusive things because, you know, I had consent while, you know, they were fucked up. Mm. I, I totally agree. And, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the problems because even pre, and maybe this is actually important context, even pre legitimate, like study, like from the MDMA trials by MAPS and, and other like uh, psychedelic studies, it's been an issue uh, in the Amazon, you know, for the hordes of people that have been going down to do ayahuasca. Like there's been many reports of uh, quote unquote shamans, and they may actually be shamans, but taking advantage of people in highly suggestible situations, typically women, right? Uh, you know, there's some horror stories. And of course the horror stories get amplified, but there, there's enough of them that they're obviously, you know, there's truth to them. And so, you know, it's not just the legal legal and regulatory framework that allows that to happen i mean it can happen just the same in a decriminalized or non-legal environment so it, it it's an issue right because these and it, this is kind of like bitcoin right like we can't imp you can't dictate how people use bitcoin or who uses it and this is perfectly salient in the landscape today right because certain factions in the west are like ah, like, you know, fucking, we got to stop Putin from using Bitcoin and crypto because like, or crypto or Bitcoin and crypto is bad because bad people are using it. And, you know, all the Bitcoiners are like, sorry, like it is what it is. Like any, anybody can use it. And for better or for worse, these experiences are so powerful that they're bound to be, you know, 
they're bound to be abused by some, be mishandled by some, you know, so there's going to be, there's always going to be issues with bad people uh, using powerful tools the wrong way, I guess is the right way to put it. And, uh, you know, so I don't know if that's entirely avoidable, but what I do think is that the more sanctioned that these substances and experiences get, you know, through possibly legal sanction and or social sanction is more people will be thinking about how to structure them properly and more people will be placing attention on them and more solutions will be put in place to avoid the potential pitfalls and and people will be less you know because one of the reasons and this is the case with the war on drugs too right like how many people have died of getting shitty drugs because they got to get them on the street rather than at, at, at like a place where they can confirm the the safety or, or content of them like that's why at festivals you have places in you know especially in europe where you can go and you can test your mdma to make sure it's legit because you know that helps you avoid the pitfalls of, of a black market and so i think the more sanction that it gets the better the solutions will become but we're we're so we're so coming out of the mud here that um you know we're, we're probably going to make a lot of mistakes throughout that process but i uh yeah i just I wanted to get you to clarify, uh, you know, what you meant in the tweet, because I know it's a yeah, important and, issue. And, and I have to admit, part, part of my Twitter personality, if you will, you know, has, has delved deeper into toxicity and, and uh, <laughs> a little more inflammatory and bombastic speed. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I've been aware of, and I should probably decelerate myself <laughs> a bit on that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, and so my big thing is I don't want to see it because like one of the things I see coming down the pipeline is the idea that, you know, it essentially with what I want to do, that would become a forbidden thing because like I don't have the context of, of like being a therapist or having my license, uh, which essentially just background for people like I, I actually got halfway through completing a master's degree in marriage and family therapy to, to become a therapist. And I, I found that the whole system was so corrupt and vile that I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, specifically that like, there was a lot of people that were getting licenses that I don't think had any fucking business talking to people about their own personal stuff for how much they were projecting into it. Um, and so I just have a really deep fear of that same shit playing out. Um, but, you know, I'm totally open to, to it, it producing itself in a positive and meaningful way that can create these protections. And maybe, maybe part of it is, is just, much greater monitoring and surveillance, uh, like self-imposed surveillance in the immediate situations. Cause like, I wanna be the first to admit that like people under those suggestible circumstances, like temptation produces itself. And I don't have an expectation for most people to be able to resist those sort of temptations. Cause uh, you know, it's very, very powerful. And uh, you know, most people haven't had situations where they have had, for lack of a better word, sexual opportunities present themselves in this way. Um, you know, and I think it's it's dangerous, particularly, you know, when it's a, a 45-year-old male therapist who, like, he hasn't been single for 20 years and hasn't had an opportunity towards something like that. Like, that's, that's a very tempting object to put out there that, uh, you know, Obviously, if you read this series, you'll see there are many abuses that come up in that. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure how we address that, but I do feel confident that 
or at least moving in the right direction. It just really scares me to kind of see maps moving in this corporate direction, seeing the way that they're, they're just doing a lot of sketchy shit that like, I don't appreciate at all. And it really feels, uh, and what feels so different is that like, it feels particularly nasty and disgusting with what we know about these substances and experiences and seeing mm -hmm. that these people are behaving in that way. It just really, ugh. yeah, I'm going to check it out for sure. Uh, I've interviewed Rick Doblin before as the founder of MAPS, so I'm, I'd be interested to kind of hear what's been going on under his watch and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, an interesting aside to your point about like, you know, not wanting to see it uh, turn into this corporate thing where people come and learn how to be better like corporate stooges. One, I mean, obviously we're, we're imposing what we think should be, these should, should be handled and maybe we're right, but still there's, there's that aspect of it. But two, I think it was... So I don't know if you're familiar with the history of, of like psychedelic awareness in the U.S., but uh, Gordon Wasson went down to Mexico and he uh, met with or found Maria Sabina. And she was like one of the last remaining uh, uh, yeah, psilocybin yeah. shamans. Right. And he ended he, he had an experience, mind blowing, came back. And I believe it was him who wrote the Life magazine article that kind of in the, in the 50s that brought this yeah, to yeah. mainstream attention. And I think. It was either him or someone he was with, I think, you know, I have to check this. So, you know, don't verify this, but I think one of his stated reasons for pursuing the experience was he wanted to get better at picking stocks. Like he wanted to gain insight into stock picking <laughs> that it was either him or maybe one of the melons like of bank of New York melon fame that was early in psychedelics. Uh, anyways, but my, my, my kind of funny aside is like, what if it was, and so his, if that is true, his motivation, selfish motivation to pick stocks better led to the proliferation of the psychedelic, you know, uh, uh, phenomenon in the U S and across the world. What if one of these stooges comes down on the fucking corporate LSD retreat and, you know, he's supposed to get programming to work harder. And instead he gets a different kind of programming and he ends up reforming the whole, the whole, you know, uh, corporate structure of his company. And maybe his company is one of the most powerful companies in the world. And, you know, it ends up being a good thing. So it's so, I mean, we can't predict the future, right? So many small, like little forks in the road end up changing the course of history. So, um, there's no real point there. I it's just want to make that, the that, aside that it's sometimes it's not what we expect, you know? I mean, to me, like, I, I'm very suspicious that there's this kind of crazy secret relationship between psychedelics and Bitcoin. Cause like, same thing, like, Oh, like, let me come in for a bunch of profits. Like psych turns out like, this is all about like your, your soul and spirituality. So you're suspicious. Uh, I, what do you mean? Like, you don't think there is a relationship between Bitcoin and psychedelics? I, I, I do, but like, I don't have a, a smoking gun anywhere. So like, oh, I, I you see. know, and I don't know if it's even possible to produce a, a smoking gun, but I mean, so much so to the extent of that, like, how fucking funny is it that like the, you know, great example of the dude who who rolled the pineapple fund, like to me, like that's super obvious that that was somebody who was running a Dartnet market thing was very successful at it. And was like, well, like I got like $100 million in Bitcoin, I guess I'll just fucking give it to drug <laughs> development, because that's what made me wealthy here. And, and, you know, with me saying what I said about maps, I do need to say that, you know, over the past 10 years, they have done more than anybody else to help advance and normalize the cause of psychedelics, maybe outside of Michael Pollan. And that these are all important 
important advancements, um, just very much like in my anarchist mentality, like I'm pretty much against all organized power structures. And so I'm very fearful of seeing these stories of abuses because to me, uh, it just hits on a really personal note of how sad and hurtful it is that somebody comes to have these spiritual experiences of a sacrament that we know delivers it and to 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 hear them be hurt and abused in that context just oh, yeah. uh it's it really really hurts my heart Absolutely. yeah you know and yeah. like so unforgivable that like in whatever context that you know let's say i make my religious spiritual retreat and we do all of our things i would want to have accountability to know like look john like if there if there's you know proof that we have that that i did something wrong like i'm you get to break my hands with a sledgehammer, John, like that, that's your obligation to me and my obligation to you, because like, I want to face that real violence that I need to have a threat to me to, to do something so rehensible. Um, with that being said, I'm happy that this stuff's playing out. Um, and it's interesting because reading that story more and more, like I'm just very suspicious about, uh, yeah, about how Molly plays on us, you know, and like just uh, how prone and error judgmental we'll be when we're in that state. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Great, great question. Great, great discussion. I'm happy that, you know, unsurprising, we're, we're pretty aligned on our principles there. And yeah, I hope that uh, more people will get to have these experiences held in a strong spiritual context so that they get to see what we've seen and experience what we've seen. Yeah, agreed. Anything else you wanted to explore on this one or shall we shut it down? I don't think so, man. I always just really like talking to you. It always just feels good to, to connect and, you know, know that we're out doing our own things and it's just great to reconnect and be well, my friend. See you, brother.